This is the Weekly You Demon. Sit back with a sarsaparilla and enjoy. Episode 54. Welcome to the second week of Advent. Hope your Advent season's going well. Mine's going okay. Spent this weekend doing a lot of drinking Friday night at some downtown function and got off to a start Thursday night with Hillsdale College to see my daughter Meg in a jazz concert. Really enjoyable. Hillsdale College is 55 minutes from my house. Has been almost my entire life since I was three years old. Over the years, I've probably been to Hillsdale, you know, prior to this year, I don't know, 20 times maybe. They used to be in our, my school's athletic conference would play sports over there. And I have family over there. Yeah, heck, yeah, no, I'll probably have 50 times. I forgot my, my, my grandparents lived there for, for like 10 years. Yeah, I went there like once a month, so yeah, I've been to Hillsdale a bajillion times, more times than I can count. I never once stepped foot on their campus. And I should have, you know, it's a conservative school, they take no federal money. Uh, but just, you know, never had occasion to go, so never, I never did. And now that Meg's there, like, I can't get enough of it. It is just a charming campus. It's like everything that school does, they do it well. It's, re- it's really pretty astounding. Everything is marked with elegance, the best way I can put it. You walk around, it's like, it's not, it's not opulent. You know, there's a difference between opulent, which is like showy, and, you know, maybe glitzy or tra- designed to impress. Hillsdale, everything is quietly well ordered, elegant, uh, nice. <laughs> I don't know how to put it, but I just love walking around that campus. But anyway, so Meg, Meg had a, a jazz concert there, so went and checked that out Thursday night. That was again quite enjoyable. I got a little antsy. I can't sit for long periods. I'm just not very good at it. I do this podcast standing up even. So about halfway through, she was done playing. I went and walked around the campus, and it was, again, just blown away. But all sorts of stuff was on campus, all sorts of tents, kind of kind of clogging the view. I was kind of bummed out a little bit. I was like, this is not very sightly. And Meg said, oh, they're having Founders Fest on Saturday night. She was, it's a big deal. It's the 175th anniversary of the school. And so, yeah, that made sense. And then she texted us Saturday night and said she's just loving it. They had, like, two different drinking tents, and that's something I really, really like about Hillsdale. I guess the very first week you're there, you go to the garden party where Larry Arn, the president, speaks. And he, he's been drinking. You know, he's not sloshed by any stretch and like that. There's, you know, he either has a drink in his hand or you saw him drinking before. But you can tell he's drinking, having a good time. But he's not sloshed. And it's like right from the get-go, Hillsdale's doing a handful of things. One, they're telling you drinking's okay. As long as it's legal, you know, they can't be promoting underage drinking, and they don't. Meg said they're very, very strict on underage 21. But if you're 21, they want to promote responsible drinking. And she goes, all their functions have wine, mixed drinks, beer, and faculty come. Here's the football players come. Some of the frat boys come, and, you know, they're heavy drinkers. But they all come, and they have a couple of drinks. And she says it's very, it's, it's very well ordered. So, you know, you know, the, the buildings are well ordered. The football stadium is well ordered. The drinking's well ordered. I remember back in the 1980s, I was looking to go there, and I was told it was it was just like a freaking party school. I don't know if that was true or not. 
I also remember someone said something that was like the German barracks. It was so strict. So I, I remember hearing terribly conflicting things about, <laughs> about Hillsdale. It's also hard to get into. You know, Meg's run a cross-country scholarship there. And in the middle of her interview with the coach, she told him what his SAT score was. And he's like, whoa, 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 I'm not sure that's high enough to get in here. I'm not allowed to talk to you unless you translate out to a 27 on the ACT. So he said, bare minimum, 27 ACT, we can't talk. Turns out her SAT score translated well over that, so it wasn't a problem, but he had to go check it out. And I've seen that other things at the minimum score is 26. But either way, they will not even entertain you as an applicant, no matter how good you are at sports or anything else, unless you have a minimum 26 or 27 on the ACT. Its average ACT score of its incoming freshman is slightly above Michigan's, making it, from that angle, the hardest school in Michigan to get into. And the University of Michigan is very hard to get into. It's, it's, it's one of the top public schools in the univer- in the country. But Hillsdale, if you look at the average ACT score of incoming freshmen, is higher than Michigan. I think there's like a 28 and Michigan's a 27 or 29. I, I forget. But I looked it up and yeah, Hillsdale is hard to get into. Now, what that doesn't reflect is Michigan is letting in a lot of minorities who don't need to be, you know, shouldn't be there because their ACT scores are so low. <laughs> they don't want the academics to get in there, but Michigan has a very aggressive affirmative action. So aggressive, the Supreme Court actually knocked it down 10 years ago or so. So if you look at, you know, for a white person to get into Michigan, it's still harder than to get into Hillsdale. But overall, Hillsdale's admission standards are more rigorous than Michigan's. And that's really interesting that Hillsdale does no affirmative action because apparently it was the first college in the United States to put in its charter, we will not discriminate based on race. So this is a very quote-unquote progressive school from that sense, which I think drives the liberals nuts because it's fiercely conservative now. And when affirmative action came out, they said, to hell with you. We're not, we're not doing it. We're not doing any affirmative action. And they actually went, went to court over it because there's some students that were getting student loans, federal student loans. And they said, well, you gotta have, you gotta have affirmative action program. They can't have student loans. And I think Hillsdale lost that lawsuit and they said, okay, to hell with you. Not only do we not take federal money directly, we're not even going to take kids who take federal loans. Instead, we'll establish our own endowment, which is massive for a school of size. According to Wikipedia, it's over $500 million. I think most schools of size are going to make fifty to $100 million. Says, we will subsidize. We'll give the loans out, the equivalent federal loans. And we don't want anything to do with the federal government. It's like, wow, hallelujah to that. <laughs> so here you have a school who is a pioneer in welcoming blacks and minorities basically towing the line and saying, yeah, we're going to be consistent. There will be no discrimination at Hillsdale College based on race. Uh, and there's a ton of money at stake. <laughs> and they, they they stuck to the guns. It's really just, just an impressive school. And it stayed the course like this for a long time. I think like in the 1960s, the Board of Trustees said, screw you, federal government, we're not taking your money. And they stayed the course. I guess they're they're in a battle now with University of Missouri over the Austrian School of Economics. If you read some of the stuff I write, listen to podcasts, you know I'm a big fan of the Austrian School of Economics. That's Ludwig von Mises, Friedrich Hayek, and a few others. Hayek actually won the Nobel Prize back in 1974, I think it was, early 70s. Well, it turns out that some rich guy left money to the University of Missouri and said, but you must use this money. It was a ton of money. I think it's up to $13 million now with interest. You must use this money to endow five year five chairs 
in the economics department of Austrian economists. They asked me Austrian economists, and Missouri basically said, now we'll take the money, but we're not going to do that with it. Which is, you know, the University of Missouri, what a piece of crap school. <laughs> I mean, top to bottom, that thing is just awful. I, w- I wouldn't send my dog there to get trained. <laughs> yeah, but, so here, the, these sons of bitches, they, they take the money, and then they put up some weak facade. Well, they're, they're kind of Austrian, you know, and, and, and they're clearly not. And so instead of doing the honorable thing, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't, I didn't mention the kicker. The guy's gift said, and if you don't want to do that, then the money goes to Hillsdale College. And Hillsdale College will make the determination, basically. You, know, you have to report to Hillsdale College what you're doing with that money. So it's kind of odd. They actually, from what I can tell, reading two articles about it, the donor set up a system that favored Hillsdale. You know, not only is Hillsdale going to be the judge, if Hillsdale says you're not doing it right, then Hillsdale College gets the money, so it's hardly an impartial judge. But in the United States, donor is king. There are a couple of restrictions, but for the most part, you put it in your will, you put it in a trust, that controls. And these sons of bitches at Missouri, by all accounts, basically say, well, we're just going to kind of lie about it. We don't really want to have Austrian economists on our campus because they're kind of conservative. So we're just not going to, you know, we're not going to do that. But we're going to keep the money anyway. And Hillsdale College is suing them. You know, hats off to Hillsdale College. Yeah, but freaking Missouri University, I guess a couple of years ago, they were shuttering dorms. Parents weren't sending their kids there after all that brouhaha or the, the president wasn't sensitive enough to some racial incident on Missouri's campus and the kids rioted or whatever and and they really took it in the shorts. Then they had that, oh gosh, what was that gay guy? <laughs> Michael Sam, I think his name was. You know, where ESPN would basically went out gaga and, you know, oh, Michael Sam, Michael Sam, he should be in the NFL, and he just wasn't that good. <laughs> but he came out of Missouri, and Missouri's a big proponent of gay rights. It's just, just, just an awful place. It's funny, you know, my ESPN, I mean, you, you couldn't watch ESPN for like five minutes without hearing about Michael Sam, first gay player in the NFL. ESPN back in those days was so freaking off the left wing, it wasn't even funny. But then I guess last May, President ESPN made an announcement, said, well, we've done our, we've done our studies and we've taken surveys and it's clear our audience does not want us to be political. And they pretty much told the deed, you know, they pretty much told their disc jockeys or their talking heads, shut up, talk sports, talk sports only. It's gotten a lot better in the past six months. I mean, it's owned by that cesspool, Disney. <laughs> so, you know, and they, and they hired Keith Olbermann, who is just a bastard. They hired him back to, you know, to work ESPN. Although I've been listening to him and yeah, you know, he seems to be towing the line. He doesn't seem to let his politics get, get mixed in there, but he is, he is like a leftist of the worst sort. It's just a thoroughly, thoroughly disagreeable person. Yeah, from what I can tell, I guess I don't know a lot about his personal life. Although it seems to me I've heard he has some turmoil there too, because again, everything about that guy just screams son of a bitch, mean, spiteful. Who knows? And again, I don't know the guy. Maybe I'm wrong, but. He just drips that type of personality. And, of course, he's at ESPN. But they do seem to be trying to toe the line and getting away from politics. And thank goodness, because those Michael Sam years were just awful. I remember just salivating because Fox Sports was going to launch a competitor to ESPN. And I was stoked. Channel 90 <laughs> on my charter TV. And I'd click on Channel 90, ready to watch some real sports coverage, not politics. And I got NASCAR. Or, and this happened twice, dog shows. I S you not. Twice, I had to watch 
dog shows. So my choice was watching dogs jump through little hoops with their handlers, you know, walking along with little steps and those little sweaters on and whatever the frick they have. Or go over to ESPN and watch Michael Sam coverage. <laughs> that was like my two options for sports. I was like, ah, oh, frick, I'll just take up knitting. forced to pull back on some something I said in the last episode. I was talking about that this student listener who's thinking about becoming a philosophy major. Hey, uh, a friend of one of my sons said, hey, I listen to your dad's podcast. Tell him I'm taking a philosophy class at my public university. And we spent like, the first week talking about the gender wage gap. <laughs> so tell your dad to put that advice in his pipe and smoke it. It's like, yeah, I guess I didn't think about that. The person I was talking to is at a good school with a good philosophy department. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, it might have been. I've only known one like philosophy major in my life. I actually really liked it. I was into it. And the guy was a nihilist. I basically didn't believe in anything. To this day, I think he's a nihilist. Decent guy. I'm not sure why. <laughs> Just a nihilist. Believes in nothing. So, yeah, so let me, let's, here's part two of my advice if you want to be a philosopher or a philosophy student. Uh, make sure you believe in truth. <laughs> I think it could go without saying that most philosophy PhDs out there today don't believe truth exists, whether it's of the postmodernist type or whatever, even though I have an enormous uh, soft spot and respect for postmodernism. Let's face it, they don't believe truth exists. And to the extent that they, they control the public universities, that's what you're getting. So you get a philosophy professor in your, you know, sophomore introductory course of philosophy who talks a lot about the gender wage gap. <laughs> so yes, don't pursue philosophy if you don't believe truth exists. Don't get a philosophy degree if your philosophy department at your college university consists of professors who don't believe truth exists. I don't know how you find that out. I guess you can go in. Why? Well, it'd be really no. It'd be pretty much pretty much impossible. I guess if you go in there and see that, hey, we have some neo-Thomistic <laughs> philosophers. Yeah, okay, maybe. Uh, but no, it's, I don't know how you can flush it out. Even if you're at a Catholic school, I don't think you're gonna, you're going to get it. I mean, get Georgetown. I mean, gosh, based on what I've seen, that that thing is scarcely Catholic anymore. Although I know they have some good professors. Uh, yeah, you got to believe truth exists. In a closely related vein, if you're going to pursue philosophy, you can't treat it like mental masturbation. You know, here's this, you know, here's this clip from Animal House. That means that our whole solar system could be like one tiny atom in the fingernail of some other giant being. <laughs> oh, this is too much. That means that. One tiny atom in my fingernail could be, could be one little tiny universe. Could I buy some pot from you? That's 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 worthless. That's not. There's no goal to that type of thinking. As I hear a lot of podcasters talk about that, that's a stoner talk. You know, oh wow, man, you blow my mind. No, don't don't do that. There has to be an aim. <laughs> there has to be a goal. 
Yes, and that, that is truth itself. Stoner talk, mental masturbation, that's just sitting around thinking about things even though you know you're never even gonna, you're never gonna be able to reach a conclusion about them. So, again, you have to pursue truth. You have to avoid mental masturbation or stoner talk. Alright, let's do some lightning segments. Hey, if you get a chance and you want to hear two intellectually honest liberals chatting for an hour and a half or however long it is, go check out the Joe Rogan episode with Matt Taibbi. T-A-I-B-B-I. I've been reading Taibbi for years and he is no doubt a man of the left. But I've always been struck by just how intellectually honest he is. I mean, I remember he wrote a he wrote an article about um, the subprime meltdown 2008-2009 and he freaking nailed it. And he just laid it right out. He makes the conclusion for Rolling Stone magazine that we need greater regulation, which I disagree with. Because, again, he is a man of the left, and therefore he wants more and more government whenever possible. But I think he's an intellectually honest man of the left. And he and Rogan, you know, Rogan's also a guy of the left, although in a, in a different kind of way. And they're talking about various things. It's really it's really good. It's, it's, it's fun to listen to, and you know, gives you hope that there can be some cross-dialogue between the two sides. It's kind of funny, you know, Rogan, he, he lays it right out about Jeffrey Epstein. He's like, that was just so brazen, there's absolutely no way he killed himself. Everyone knows it, and it was just right in your face. And I think maybe the establishment realizes we may have gone too far this time. <laughs> because, and Rogan, I mean, gosh, that guy's going to get himself killed. <laughs> He's just saying... Because everyone knows it didn't happen. And Tybee's like right there, you know, nodding along. Or not always nodding, I'm just listening to him. <laughs> but he seems to be agreeing. It's like, yeah, that was just, that was so freaking brazen that they killed this guy. It's amazing with the stuff coming out about, about, about this Epstein. I mean, what, I mean, how many trips did Bill Clinton make to that island? I'm at, I'm not sure they can count them all, but I'm not, I think it's like 18, 30. I forget what they said in the podcast, but it's unbelievable. But it's a, it's a fun listen. Again, Matt Taibbi, I've long enjoyed his work. He is a leftist, but again, the intellectually honest sort. They both rail against the censorship that is, you know, Twitter and YouTube and all that. And how about just, just how unhealthy it is and just what a problem they're causing with the censorship. And, and this is really bizarre. It's like, you know, why is the left doing this? Because, again, they're kind of ashamed. They, they, they're self-described leftists. And, like, our side is doing this, this type of censorship. Why are we doing it? This is really shameful. We're embarrassed by it. And I think I could tell them the answer is because your side knows they ain't right. <laughs> it's like they need to sense this stuff because they'll know they'll lose the debate. Rogan and Tybee, they're just like, let, let, let those conservatives go out there and speak their mind. They'll lose in the public, you know, the public forum. And therefore, you know, let, let them, let them talk. And we'll see just how stupid they are. It's just like, really? I don't think it's quite that cut and dry. <laughs> in fact, it's obviously just the opposite. You know you're going to lose that debate. If you if you didn't know that, then you'd let them speak. So anyway, kind of interesting, but but definitely definitely recommend the podcast. Although I'm only about halfway through it, so for something in the back half that I shouldn't listen to, my apologies. So I'm packing on weight, and I'm just like, what the frisk going on? I'm doing the exact same things I did last summer, eating the same, everything. And so I googled it. I just googled something like weight gain winter, and bam. <laughs> a ton of links come up. And it's actually pretty fascinating. I didn't read the articles. I just read excerpts here and there. But the gist of it seems to be, yeah, as 
winter approaches and winter's here, you pack on weight and science doesn't know why. They speculated like it's a lack of vitamin D. Uh, maybe, you know, back our ancestors, the Neanderthals, you know, they had to they had to pack on weight in the fall when the harvest came in because they needed a store of fat to get through the winter and that's then hardwired into our DNA. You know, so it's evolutionary. No one it seems to know why, but they said, no, I said, you're, you're, it's hard to lose weight. You know, as, as winter comes on and winter's here, it's hard to lose weight. And you just pack on, pack on, pack on. So I guess I'm going to use this Advent to go on some hardcore fasting. And I call it fasting. That gives it a self-righteous religious tune to it. As opposed, as opposed to dieting. Hey, if you're buying stuff on Amazon this holiday season, go to thedailydemon.com. There's an Amazon little banner there. You can actually search Amazon right from that site. And if you access Amazon through that site, anything you buy while you're in there, I get a kickback, like 5%. It depends. Sometimes it's 4%, sometimes it's 6%, but right around 5%. I haven't been pushing it much lately, but yeah, it used to be quite quite lucrative. I'd bring in some months as much as 200 bucks. <laughs> it's a classic, don't give up your day job, but it definitely covered my covered my beer expense. Hey, going back to Hillsdale College is funny. Meg's jazz concert was held in the Free Enterprise Auditorium. <laughs> That's what it was called. <laughs> I was walking around because I got antsy. I'm looking at this, this wall of various donors, and some donors were, were members of the, the Ludwig von Mises uh, giving level. <laughs> they call it and they're like right in your face with their Austrian economics and their conservative politics and then they had the Frederick Bastiat Society for certain donors Bastiat was an, was an early uh, opponent of the French physiocrats who believed in a large uh, large amount of protectionism tariffs things like that and Bastiat was like no no he was all about free enterprise and he was like a pioneer he was talking about these things before other people were if you want to go back to the real free enterprise thinkers, I guess you got to go back and pull out some Jesuits from Salamanca University in like the 15th century. But Bastiat, though, a couple hundred years later, he was writing about these free enterprise concepts. And he was a real, real pioneer. Brilliant man, obviously. I saw this morning that Simon Cowell from America's Got Talent is, is lawyering up. Because apparently he created like a toxic environment. Yeah, I always knew I liked Simon. <laughs> and I'm not a proponent of, you know, sexual abuse or anything like that. But these, these allegations, toxic environment. He was overly harsh of female contestants. It's, I, yeah, it's just like, these are not serious allegations. This is just, this is just bunk. And I can have long suspect that Simon Cowell is like a closet conservative, but I've never done an inch of research on him and just haven't really cared enough to do so. <laughs> but hats off to Simon Cowell for creating a toxic environment. How awful is that? Alright, if you haven't noticed, uh, the, the, the Weekly Demon blog is up and running after fits and stops for the past nine months. I think I finally settle on a format and the format is no format <laughs> you're, if you go to the blog you're going to see a mix of things you're going to see just some ramblings like miniature essays where I talk about whatever and those are often going to be on Fridays when I'm talking about drinking and if you've been over there you're going to notice you're going to start seeing like miniature essays 
in the past week, you would have seen essays about Albert Camus and existentialism. That's because I've, I stumbled across something recently that kind of blew my mind. I, I, I'm thinking the whole postmodern world or contemporary culture, this great divide, even in the political arena that we're seeing, possibly can be broken down to two camps. And I'm not saying there's two types of people. You know, I, mean, I always hated that because there's never just two types of people. And I'm not saying there's two types of camps here. But I think there's something to be explored along the lines that you have existentialists and you have what I call essences. <laughs> so you have existentialists like Albert Camus, Zen, things like that. And then you have essences, E-S-S-E-N-C-E, hyphen I-S-T. Again, that's just a term I came up with. People who emphasize essence. And I, I'm not going to get into it here. Yeah, I know I'm boring you, but the existentialist side of thought emphasizes the fact that we just exist. Doesn't matter what we are. Doesn't matter if we're a lawyer, short, tall, black, brown, ill-tempered, even-tempered, rich, poor. Doesn't matter. All those things are essences. They help define us. So you have a lion. The lion just exists. It's not a lion, not, not a lion. It just exists first and foremost. It has certain traits that make it a lion, that gives it its lioness. Those things are essences. And I think when people look out in the world, you kind of take the existentialist side of things or you emphasize the essence side of things. And this thought's been kind of just I'll kind of turned around in my mind for the past month and I realized, frick, I have two aborted books. One was about existentialism. And those are the excerpts you're seeing at the blog right now. I'm just going through, cutting and pasting from that book. It was like, I don't know, 30, 40,000 words. Anyway, some of it's not bad. <laughs> so you're seeing those miniature essays, but it's about existentialism there. And the whole point is there's something about modern living that tells men you need to get back to the simple act of existence. And that's why existentialism has, has proven so popular. It has had, had such sustaining power. Whether it's the Zen Buddhism of D.T. Suzuki, Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, the Beatniks were largely existentialists, Albert Camus was very popular, the list goes on and on. St. Therese Lesue, that's a highly existentialist way of living. So it's been very, very popular. And that's, and this book kind of explores why that's the case. The other book I wrote, I call The Anti-Modernist Primer, and that's pure crap. Because I didn't know what I was getting at, but I now know. The anti-modernist primer is like a doltist version of what Jacques Derrida was trying to say. Jacques Derrida was an essencist. He hated the concept of existence, being, permanence. Jacques Derrida was saying, no, it's all essence. It's all becoming. There is no truth. There is no being. Everything's and is transitory. And then he got down on the modern experiment. You know, basically, I'm, I'm, I don't know where he, how far back he went, but Bacon, all the way to contemporary philosophers like De Saussure, and Claude Levi-Strauss, or Levi-Strauss, however, however they pronounce that. I just think Levi's like in the, in the genes. Claude Levi-Strauss. And he basically seemed to be saying, look at you're all about essence, but you never got rid of the existentialism portion. That's still at the core of your thinking. 
And that's what he was excoriating for, and with good reason. He is onto something. My aborted book, The Anti-Modernist Primer, I realize now, was an attack on essences, you know, essenticism. <laughs> you know, I've pronounced that word I made up. Essenticism, that is modernity, with its Gnostic kicker. Because I think that's what Vogelin's getting at. Eric Vogelin comes in and says, look at modernity. You're all about your essences, whether it's empiricism or utilitarianism, and you focus on the essence of things, but yet you still got this, this fierce religious quest inside of you. And that's Gnosticism. And I think that's what Derrida's getting at. He didn't use those terms, but I'm, I'm just absolutely fascinated. And I, I didn't know where these manuscripts were, so I, you know, and I wrote them back like in my late 20s and probably my early 30s. So I went downstairs and I moved like 48 empty cans of Schlitz <laughs> and pulled those manuscripts out and started looking at them. I was like, wow. I mean, everything's half-baked in my ideas. Actually, I'm not sure half-baked, maybe 20% baked. <laughs> but, but it's there. I was like, I, I, I was, I was onto something. I, I guess I was like, you know, St. Paul seeing, seeing through a glass darkly, just without the holiness or the prose ability or the brilliance. Uh, <laughs> but there was something there. But that's what you begin to see over at the Weekly Demon. It's just like there's two podcast strings. There's two, there's two blog strings. There's the dailydemon.com, which has been around since 2004, making it like, 115 in blog years. That's like 15 years of blogging. It's, I think it, it's got to be like in the 90th percentile of long, long live blogs. But then it has a simultaneous string over at the weekly even podcast site. There's a blog site and they're, they're absolutely identical. Once in a while, there's a small tweak. But if you go there and you're seeing these type of, these essays that just seem to come out of nowhere, that's what you're looking at. Right now, I will be one, two, three, four times a week cutting and pasting from the existentialist book and putting them into the blog. Partly because of time constraints. There's too much going on. You know, my goal is to free more time up next year for more serious writing and podcasting. But right now, I'm kind of just trying to get things cleared away from my mom's death and everything else going on at the office, trying to trying to clear, clear my decks for a peaceful winter, hopefully. So I'm kind of constrained for time. But probably because it's like, holy smokes, I have a lot of, a lot of stuff here. You know, I'm, I, I'm guessing between the two books, I have 50, 60,000 words written. Now half it's just junk. <laughs> so I'm not even going to put it on my blog. But what you're seeing now, when you see these essays out of nowhere, you are seeing the existentialist book. I'm just going through paragraph by paragraph. And I think if it's worth pasting, I'm pasting into the blog. So you're kind of reading the whole book or at least the decent stuff from that book. And then probably next year I'll start cutting and pasting for the anti-modernist primer. Although that thing is sold, I don't think I have a digital copy. I'm going to have to re-key portions of that. So that that's a little more problematical. Alright, that's going to be it for this week. Hey, a quick note in the lighting segments. <laughs> I mentioned that Bastiat was an opponent of the French physiocrats. I got that <laughs> 180 degrees wrong. It's the French mercantilists that he opposed. The mercantilists were in favor of terrorists and such. Anyway, check out the blog. As I mentioned, it's back up and running. Check out the Facebook page. Go to Twitter. As always, thanks for listening.